Okay, I think maybe by way of introduction, with the younger kids, I was talking to them a little bit more in detail about the, the parchment, the quill, the ink, and I'll very briefly allude to that as well, but I'd like to go with you a little bit deeper into the making of the Torah, what makes it so special, and so on. Um, <clears throat> but by way of introduction, so my name is Rabbi Druin, I live in Miami, married, as you heard, 11 children, and I've been a sofer now for 32 years. Now, often the concept of becoming a sofer is somewhat in a mystery out there because one cannot go to a school or a college, university course, or even a yeshiva to study to become a sofer. So how does one become a sofer? You have to become an apprentice. You have to find another sofer who's willing to spend the time with you and train you and do it. And it could take anything between three and four years on average to become a sofer in the training of both the writing and then ultimately learning the Jewish laws, qualifying and becoming the scribe. Now my story was somewhat... Um, I, I suppose my whole life has been somewhat different in the way things came about. Um, <clears throat> so I was a young guy, about 18 years old at that time, and although from much earlier, from the time I was about eight or nine, and I was growing up in Israel, we made Aliyah when I was six, I came by a little page of the Hebrew letters as they appear in the Torah, and as an artist from a very young age, I fell in love with these letters. So while everyone in the class was scribbling scribbles, I was scribbling Hebrew letters. And it was many years later when now, when now I was in yeshiva and I was now the comic artist in there, you know, drawing the funny faces of all the rabbis and stuff, right? And um, they said, Moshe, you should really become the ultimate artist. You know, you should become a sofer. I said, no, for that stuff you have to be holy and I don't know if I'm ready for that. And they said, give it a try. And I gave it a try and I was like a fish in water. But the fascinating piece which I'm going to share with you is that there are, as, there are four main areas that a scribe trains to write. Um, there's the Torah, as we all know, there's the mezuzah, there's the tefillin, the little portions we put in the tefillin, and the Megillat Esther, the book of Esther. Now, what would you think would be the first of those four that a scribe would train when writing? A Torah, Megillah, mezuzah, tefillin, which would... Tefillin, mezuzah, mezuzah, Torah, Esther. Okay, I'll give you the answer like this. While there's thousands of Jewish laws that a scribe has to study and, get, and pass tests to qualify as a scribe, in fact, just to write a small mezuzah scroll, there are over 7,000 Jewish laws that one has to train, read, learn, memorize, get tested on, and pass. The most important Jewish law, and more than just the law, but concept that a sofer is being trained, and that is how not to make a mistake in writing God's name. So, so much of the training and the mindset and the, is how to build up to the point where, where everything, you will not make a mistake in God's name. So therefore, we're going to be learning, we're going to be writing, we're going to do everything we can to get to the point that when we would write God's name, we are practically assured that we know what to do so as not to make a mistake. So if you think of it, which out of those four does not have God's name so we can write them as many times as we want to? It's the book of Esther. So in fact, the Megillat Esther is the first, if you will, object, the first scroll that a scribe would write. And many scribes will write 5, 10, 20 of them until they really get the flow and then the scribe that's training them would say, okay, we think you're good to go. Now you can go and write your first mezuzah, which would be the next one. And then when you qualify on that one, that's when you usually get the stamp as a scribe. So my story goes, 
I'm in Israel, I'm writing my first Megillah. But here comes a little bit of a side note to what was going on in my life. At that time, I was in yeshiva. I wanted to go for the first time in my life, living in Israel. I wanted to travel to New York. Although I was born there, I had never been back to visit. And I wanted to visit, at that time, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe. Go figure. I was self-sufficient, supporting myself at that age. Anything I wanted, if I didn't earn it, I didn't have it. The ticket was $850. So I was going to do everything I could to raise the money for it. Now today, if you want to buy a Megillah, Megillah at the stair, you go down to a Judaica store, a scribe here, Israel, you'll pay $1,800, $2,500, sometimes even four or $5,000. The fact remains until today that if you are a beginner scribe, especially on your first Megillah, no matter how beautiful it is, they will offer you pennies on the dollar. So I write this Megillah, which I was very proud of, thought it would look very good, and I, I was writing it ultimately to sell it. So I went around, would you buy my Megillah? Let me see. Good, I'll give you $75 for it. I said, what? <laughs> you go and pay $1,800? You're a beginner? That's all I'm offering you. Okay, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. I went to someone else. $85. Not, I wasn't getting close to 100 No, I said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go somewhere that nobody knows me. Right? <laughs> so I start sending my faxes around, you know. So a guy from Tel Aviv calls me. Again, I'm not going to lie. And a person calls me and he sees the script and says, hey, how many have you written? I said, it's the first one. Okay, listen, you know what? I'll offer you 150. That was the best offer I was getting. And I needed the money, so what am I going to do? I get permission from the yeshiva. I'm on the bus traveling to Tel Aviv to, with my Megillah to go and sell it. In the middle of the trip, someone gets on the bus, sits down next to me. And he says to me, um, are you a yeshiva boy? Yeshiva bachar? I says, I happen to be. This is all in Hebrew. So he says to me, so if you're a Shiva Bachar and it's the middle of the day, you're bunking, huh? You're going to the beach in the middle of the school. You're, well, what are you doing? I said, no, 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 I'm a scribe. And you're a scribe, what do you write? I wrote a Megillah. So why are you on the bus? Someone in Tel Aviv might want to look at it, might want to buy it. I'm going to show. You have it? Yes, I do. Can I see it? Yes, I say you can. I open it up and I show it to him. He says, this is beautiful. How much do you want for it? $850. He didn't blink. This is in the 80s. He takes out. From his wallet, $850, U.S. dollars, cash, hands me the money, takes my Megillah, gets off the next bus stop. Never saw him again. <laughs> so you can bet I was in New York for Passover, right? <laughs> the story continues slightly from that point. So I'm in New York. It did happen that the scribes who were training me were very happy and very pleased with my script, and they allowed me to go immediately after my first Megillah to write immediately my first mezuzah scroll. And I was going to do this in New York. And the way it would work is that after you write your mezuzah, you show it to a panel of scribes. They verify if they're pleased with it. They give you the permission to go now and study and get tested. And then you get the stamp that you're a scribe. So I have written tens of thousands, if not 100,000 by now, mezuzah scrolls. Today, to write a mezuzah scroll takes me about an hour, hour and a quarter. This mezuzah, and by the way, it's on parchment with the quill. It's a little bit smaller, more difficult, but I'm very good at it, very quick, no problem. This first mezuzah scroll took me seven hours to write. Not because I was slow, but this was very serious business. I mean, I was going to be tested on this, and being a perfectionist at the very least, I didn't want to make any mistakes. So I wrote it very slowly and carefully. And after I finished writing it, I checked it. I read over it to make sure every crown, every piece, and I checked it again. Once I was happy, 
I go over and I hand it over to the scribe in New York who's going to look over it. Now, I'm not very good with names. By the fact that I meet so many, I can be excused. But this person, I'll never forget his name, Rabbi Elishevitz. And he takes my mezuzah and he says, okay, I'll call you a little while later and let you know. He calls me a little while later and he says, Meisha, that's my first name, I have good news and I have bad news. Okay, what's the good news? I said, he says to me, the good news is, for a first mezuzah scroll, it's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. It looks like you've been writing for 20 years. I said, oh, so, well, thank you. That's in the very, very night. I said, so what's the bad news? He says to me, the bad news is, it's pasul, it's not kosher, you're going to have to bury it. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he says, come and see. What do you mean, come and see? I ran. I ran to his place. He hands me back my mezuzah. He hands me back my mezuzah scroll and says, take a look. Here it is. And I read through it. I said, this is perfect. What are you talking about? He says, read it again. I read it again. I said, it's fine. He says, read it one more. Three times. I says, you're pulling my leg. Because I was a bit inflated, I'm feeling too good about myself. He's trying to deflate me, right? He shows me I missed a letter. You know they say cowboys don't cry. There's a bigger saying, scribes don't cry. I burst out crying. 18 years old, I burst out crying. Not as much as because I was insulted and embarrassed, but it struck me that, you know, if you go and, you know, a shoe comes out crooked, if you're selling shoes, if you're selling this, no, you make another one. But here I'm writing a mezuzah. And a mezuzah for the purpose of actually selling and giving to another Jew that maybe you may have my mezuzah on your door. It's meant to be a source of blessings. And if I couldn't see the mistake, after checking it and rechecking it, maybe this was a sign that God was saying, get out while you're ahead. And I was really distraught by it. So, but I'll never forget what happened next. Rabbi Lishevitz put his hand on my shoulder and says to me, Moshe, you're going to be a good scribe. I said, what makes you say that between the tears? I said, look, I, I messed up on my first one. And even after you told me there was a problem, I still couldn't see it. It's not going to happen. He said, no, no, no. You're missing one very important piece of becoming a sofer. And that is, it says that the Torah was not given to angels. You see, angels don't make mistakes. But not only do angels do not make mistakes and human beings do make mistakes, but more importantly, he says, angels can never do teshuva. They can never repent and correct mistakes because they never made them in the first place. So he said, had you turned around and says, oh, I made a mistake, okay, no big deal, I'll write another one. He says, I would have worried about you. Because it didn't bother you. He said, the fact that it bothered you so much, that's what it's all about. You'll be a good scribe. So here I am to tell you the story. I'm a scribe. And by the way, um, as a result, and I think I'm one of the very few in the world who's privileged, I have my first mezuzah because I kept it. Because most scribes write, that, write and sell, like my Megillah. You write it and sell, write it and sell. I am, it, I ne it never leaves me. Wherever I go around the world, this mezuzah is always with me. It's my first mezuzah. If you're interested later, I can show you. Actually, most people, I was last week, I think I was in eight places last week, and people were looking through it. It's very hard to see which letter it is. It's a letter that when you read it, it's not pronounced. If you like, you can take a look. But I have it here with me. It'll be something very interesting to see. Now, the next thing, next thing I'd like to share with you goes now a little bit more into the making of Torah, what we're doing over here. We know that Torah is this special book of ours, but we know that it cannot simply be a book. Why is that? Because you don't pick up a book, a math book, a science book, you don't kiss it. You don't take your newspaper and dance around the room with it. Okay? And yet, you do what with this Torah? You hug it, you kiss it, you dance with it. 
So there has to be something much more powerful to it than just another book. And surely it cannot be that a sofer is just writing letters because letters you don't hug and kiss either. Before we go a little bit into the depth of what this is all about, I'll just share with you a little bit about the parchment. We know the parchment has to be made, has to be made out of kosher animal skin. So either cow, goats, sheep, in fact it could be even deer skin. This is uh, sheep skin. This is in its raw condition. But ultimately the parchment um, goes through an incredible process of uh, first shrinking, ultimately cleaning where we take off the, the fur, we take off the fat, and then it starts to be stretched. And the process of stretching can, do, can take place either from you know, a few weeks to literally months. And the longer it's being stretched, the more refined it becomes, the more thin it, this is cow skin, the more thin it becomes, and in fact more durable. And while one can walk today into in Jerusalem, Bnebra, Ashdod, whatever, and buy all the sheets necessary to write an entire Torah in one go, you can walk out with the pile of the sheets, and you can go and spend, I don't know, $800 for all the sheets. You can walk into the same place, go to the pile right next to it, pull out another pile of sheets, and you'll pay five, $6,000. It has to do with how long it's being processed. The immediate effect that you will notice is the weight. A cheap, if you will, parchment that has been processed in a very short period of time, which has not been stretched in, that, in, in, the, in the way it's being cleaned and so on, it's very thick. A new Torah like that will weigh 25 pounds. The new Torah you're going to get is going to weigh about eight at the maximum nine pounds. Oh, thank How's that? Because How's that? I, That's I can only lift. The that Kabbalah is the reason. Torah. That is, and it's going to be much less than the Kabbalah Torah. The Kabbalah Torah probably is in the fourteen pounds. This is going to weigh, and with the poles and all, it'll scratch ten, maybe. It, that we're going to try to get a very thin and very lightweight poles as well. But the parchment in totality will weigh very little. So that's a very good, important thing about it. On top of that, it has to do not immediately with our day today, but in 10, 20, 30 years. And I'll explain it maybe by using this. Well, that we usually use cow skin across the board. But it, like here's a cow skin, this Torah, here. No, 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 almost the same size. Feel this parchment, feel how soft this one is. Now feel this one and how thick it is. Oh yeah. This one's a 25 pound Torah. Yeah. This one is again, that eight, nine pound Torah. Yeah. Okay, oh, now, but there's another effect, a positive effect of having the more refined type of parchment. Because when we use the ink, and by the way, the kosher ink that we use, I don't think it's needless to say that we use the feathers from kosher birds. It could be from ducks, goose, doves, turkeys. The reason why we use the turkey feather, it simply is the largest, the most sturdy feathers that we're capable of using. I cut my own feathers into pens. This is now like a fountain pen. and has a slit, and I cut them down in, into different steps, and we cut it to size to fit the exact measurement of the space that we're trying to use. But the ink that we use is not ink that you can go and buy in any art store for that matter. It's similar to Indian ink. Um, it has copper sulfate, gum arabic, um, gold nuts. It has ashes of different plants. It even has honey. 
the honey makes the letter shine. So when you ever look at any Torah and you see a bit of the shine there, that's the result of the honey. But the trick of the ink is not the ingredients. In fact, it's the quantity of that ingredients and how you mix it. And that is a secret that's only known to a few families in the world, and I'm not one of them. So whenever a sofer like myself wants to scribe a Torah or a mezuzah or a tefillin, whatever, they would actually have to go to one of these individual families that by tradition they've had it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years going back. And we get it from them. We sometimes dilute it according to our particular liking. And we will write. Now, the interesting thing when it comes to the actual writing on parchment, unlike paper, when you take a pen and you write on paper, the ink practically penetrates the material you're writing on. So you cannot go, I mean, even if you start erasing it, a pencil is one thing, but pen, you start making marks on it, etc. The ink, when it sits on top of parchment, only sits as a little mound on top of it, but does not penetrate the parchment. It's attached very tightly, but does not penetrate. So there's a plus and a minus. The plus is that in fact it has this type of bold letter, it has a way of actually you know, sustaining itself for a very long time over and above if it seeps through. The disadvantage is, is that when you have a hard piece of cardboard and you would write a Hebrew letter with the ink on it and you take that cardboard and you give a little bend, what would happen to the ink? Crack. It'll crack and pop off. So the more stiff the parchment is, the more not immune it is to the ripples of the hagba, the rolling, etc. Take a look at this Torah. Look at the letters. You see how they've all been cracking off? Mm-hmm. You see you're seeing white spaces in all of them? You see, I mean, you'd almost have to just hold it, hold, hold it over here. You see, look at these letters over here. You see? This is all the result. Okay? If you just hold this over here, hold it here. If you look like right over here in particular, you're going to see a whole bunch of letters. It's not because you're blurred. It's the ink has actually popped off, peeled off. And it's a result because the parchment is so stiff. So the moment you go give it a little bit of a, a twirl to it and do this over 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, that's where the scribes make all their work. But, in the, in the restoration that is. But when it comes to a refined Torah that can take the bends and the curves and all the it actually can last 10 times longer because it can take the durability of all the movements of the Torah. So that's what we're going to be getting in your particular Torah. Now, getting into some of the more exciting pieces. If you look closely, this is a sheet of Torah. You know what? I think what I'll do, this one, the light's not good enough. I'll actually use yours. This is yours. This is your sheet. This is what we wrote this morning. If you notice, the first word is completely filled in. That's the first six letters. This is the piece of your Torah. Technically, how we're going to do this is going to go as follows. This is the beginning of the first book. At the beginning and the end of each of the five books, as we're writing the Torah, we're going to leave hundreds of letters only outlined in such a way. The rest will be written out completely. Collectively, between the beginning and the end of each of the five books, we will have a thousand letters needing to be filled in, of which every single family, every one of you here, and those who are not here yet, will be participating in getting your special letter and writing it. But if you look closely, there is actually one word that's already filled in a number of times. You can see it's black throughout. I think there's five or six of them. I'm not sure. I didn't count. Okay? Can you sing? 
Can you see which word that is? No, no, no. That, besides the first word, if you look, in, almost in each Elohim. line, God's name, Elohim, is filled in. Why? As I mentioned earlier, while I don't make mistakes, I also don't take chances. So when it comes to writing God's name, that's one place I'm not taking a chance because many times we will be having you, not just you, but it could be you and your spouse and your children, holding on to my feather. In fact, my record to date is 27 people holding the feather with me at the same time, writing a letter in the Torah. So 15 people at the same time, that's a walk in the park. That's nice and easy. I have a very steady hand. I can easily handle any number. But nonetheless, while I don't make those mistakes, when it comes to God's name, I'm not taking a chance on that. But what I wanted to open this for was, if you look closely, you'll notice there are lines on the parchment. Have you noticed that? So these lines are scored onto the parchment. Every single sheet, the lines are scored one line at a time. There's someone who his job, and I've seen it, I mean, he has a, a light table and he has a big ruler, and it, shh, shh, and he does one line at a time for thousands, of, that's all he does. And he has to say each time, like you all said, L'Shem Mitzvah, right? Every time he's making a line, I'm doing this for the sake of the mitzvah, right? So we have the sheets. But now comes the best part. Now take a look again at your script. Those who are close enough will notice this. When you have lines and you go to school, they teach you you're supposed to write your letters on top of the line or under the line. In English. Take a look. In Hebrew also. In any language. When you have a line... You're writing from the Uh-oh. Do you notice what's going on here? I'm going to show you now. And this is very important. Okay, so when you have the, your A, B, right? right? You always write it on top. Right. In fact, when you write the Aleph bet, right? In any notebook in any Israeli school, that's the way you write it. You will never go and write your Aleph bet like this. And yet, choose a letter. Aleph. The Aleph it is. In the Torah, the Aleph is written like this, hanging under the line. So ask me a good question. Why? <laughs> You guys are good. Okay. So why? Why in the Torah would the letters be under the line? Go ahead. So you would have room for the vowels and the lines won't But there's no vowels. There's no vowels in the Torah. There's no vowels in the Torah. And in fact, any time that I'm writing, regular stuff, I'm always writing on top of the line. It's the only language in the world that has, by definition of the rules of it, have to be written all under the line. You can write the final letter on top and then go below. In fact, how would you do a nun sofit? If you're writing this, it was the word evan, you would just write, you know, whatever. You know, you'd just do like this. And you just pull the nun down, right? It's not a... Okay. The answer goes as follows. <clears throat> First of all, does anyone know how you say the word? There were a few here in my last session. How do you say the word letter in Hebrew? Ot, you were listening. Good. Ot. How do you say the word ot into English? Letter means ot. Ot means? Letter. Guess again. Ot in Hebrew first means a sign. Go look at this up in dictionary. If you look up the word ot, aleph, vav, taf, ot, it means sign, direction, guidance. Ot also means wonder in Hebrew. Ot in Hebrew also means magic. 
somewhere in the footnotes they'll say, oh, it could also mean letters. <laughs> so these otiyot are not just letters. These have signs, they have symbols, they have meaning, they have purpose. And we're going to try now, in a, with a very short while, try to uncover as much as I can do. So the first thing is these lines. Now, a lot of what we get ultimately is from a very interesting source, which in our last 20, 30 years has become a little bit more famous. But often we know that at Mount Sinai, we got two Torahs, right? There was the written Torah, the 613 commandments, mitzvot, and then we got what we call the oral Torah, the oral explanation and tradition. But did you know there was a third Torah? What was the third Torah that we got? Kabbalah. But this Kabbalah was not given to everyone. What they call in Hebrew, Yechidei Zgula, only very individual, special people from generation to generation were passed this information of Kabbalah. Kabbalah means to receive. And this was the spiritual, superficial, if you will, over and above nature explanation to what was going on in the universe. And not many people had the mind and the heart to really comprehend and relate to these points. In Kabbalah, when talking about all the various pieces in the world, it talks about lines. And it says there are two types of lines in this world. It says there's a lines. There are lines that connect, and then there are lines that divide. And it gives examples for both. And one of the examples it gives for lines that divide, it says the lines in the Torah. So the question is, what's it dividing? And it further explains. It says, in the Torah, the lines divide. Whatever is above the line represents the spiritual worlds, the souls, God, angels, seraphs, whatever. Anything under the line represents the physical world. And where are the Hebrew letters? In the, under the line, in the physical world. Now you should know, Kabbalah is not just, okay, sounds good, let's say it. Everything is based in Torah itself. It all has to have one way or another a particular source to it. I'm sure you all heard of the word Midrash before. Say yes. 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 Okay, good. Just being sure. And if you didn't, too late now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Midrash it says, very briefly, get to the point of it, you know, when God takes the Jews out of, out of Egypt and the Jews were very excited because out of slavery and God informs them they're going to get to the Mount Sinai. They count for 49 days and they can't wait. They come around the mountain for three days. They're preparing themselves. But the Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was the most excited one of all. He was the, the big macher. He was the one to go and get the Torah. And it says, okay, and it says that God himself was very excited about giving the Torah. So it says that Moses was about to receive it and God was about to give it. And suddenly at that very moment, a voice comes out and says, don't do it. And the Midrash says that Moses and God look around and supposedly the angels came around and says, God, you're going to do what? You're going to give your Torah to who? Do you know what this Torah is? This Torah has the secrets of the universe in it. It has all the explanations, the ins and outs about who is God. It has everything you need to know. And you're going to give this incredible to who? Did you say people? I'm not sure if any of you ever meet people before, but just in case you bump into these human creatures, let me tell you a little bit about them. They're very strange, 
Today they say they love you, the next day they don't. Today they like it, today they forget it, today they promise it's not their fault, it's the dog's fault, it's that one's fault. It's, they can't today, it's baseball the next day, it's, it's football the next day, forget it. Both of them, I just want to go and play my iPod. They'll say they want to keep the Torah the next day, they forgot about it, it's not as exciting. Don't give the Torah to people. They can't keep their word. And even if they promise with all their heart, they'll forget the next day. The angel said, give it to us. We understand the value of the Torah. We appreciate it. We'll take care of it. We know what, the, what it is, and therefore we can be responsible to look after it. Know what it's like? Could you imagine if I owned a $2 million diamond? You know what? I'm always looking after it and protect. I mean, it's $2 million, right? But I'm going out of town, and I need to give it to someone to watch. You know, I'm not just going to put it. I need someone to look after my diamond. So I'm, I'm looking around to find someone who's really trustworthy that I can rely on. I mean, I see some nice people, but... Oh, come. Could you imagine there was a little two-year-old before, and I see the two-year-old, I said, hey, two-year-old, come here. Hey, yeah, I come here, right? And I bring the little two-year-old, he says, listen, I have a $2 million diamond. Will you look after it for me? I have $2 million, I take a diamond, I watch it. No, no, I'm serious. It's a $2 million, will you do it? Okay, okay, right? And I give the $2 million diamond to the two-year-old. And I leave. And he looks at the diamond, oh, pretty diamond, oh, dirty diamond, goes to the toilet, oops, goodbye, diamond. You don't give a $2 million diamond to a two-year-old. You don't give a Torah to people. They're not responsible. They can't be accountable for their responsibility of this Torah. So it was a good point. Give it to the angels. They'll appreciate it. They'll look after it and protect it and always honor it. So what did God say? So God said, Moses. And Moses says, what? And he says, you want the Torah? I do. You answer them. <laughs> so he made Moses. <laughs> the Midrash says that he made Moses answer the angels. So how do you address an angel? Your holiness, your greatness, your angelness. I mean, so he turns to the angels and he says, can I ask you a question? He says, go ahead, Sonny. He says, can I, do you guys have parents? He asked them. He says, what do you mean? We're not born. We don't have parents. He said, well, I knew that. But if you don't have parents, how are you going to observe and follow the mitzvah that says, honor your father and mother? You guys can't do it. Good point, Sonny. Never thought of that one. I have one more question to ask you. Were you ever slaves in Egypt? They said, what do you mean? Us, angels, slaves, one whoosh of our wing, we could have wiped out Egypt. Yeah, 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 I knew that, says Moses. But if you were never a slave and never freed from slavery, you cannot celebrate Passover. You can't do it. So Moses proved to the angels two things. Number one, whenever you turn around and say your child or grandchild is an angel, no, they're not. <laughs> Number two, while we are not angels, we are the only ones who truly can benefit from this Torah. Angels cannot. We are the ones who can actually use its wisdom, its knowledge, its guidance, its siman, its ot, and really try to make ourselves better people. And while we are not perfect, we're the ones who can really use it. So where are the letters? Over or under the line? Lesson number one when you're looking at Sefer Torah. Sim simply by looking and seeing the letters hanging under the line is meant to give you that message that these letters belong to you. This is your gift. This is your inheritance because they appear in this world. Okay, now we're gonna go into another few quick li li different levels. Now, there are many ways to study Torah. You can go and open up various commentaries. We're not going there. Now, any of you ever heard of the crowns that appear on Torah? Yeah. Okay, in the various letters? There are certain letters that have one crown. There are certain letters that have two crowns. Certain letters have three crowns. Um, let's take the letter Nun, for example. Okay. Get the thick part. There we go. Okay, on top of the nun, there are three crowns. One, two, three. Some letters have one, 
One letter has two. By the way, which letter reaches higher than the line? The letter Lamed. Okay? And there's another whole concept to that. But what's beautiful about the Lamed is on top of the Lamed, it has two crowns. Which one's taller? Of the two crowns. One, two. The one on the right. Everything has a reason. There's nothing in this world that is just because. And have you ever heard of Rabbi Akiva before? Now, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, I suppose, if one had to go and make a list of the top ten greatest Jewish leaders of all times, from Abraham till today, Rabbi Akiva features in the top ten. This guy, at the age of 40, he couldn't read Aleph and Bet. Illiterate. He was a shepherd, couldn't read nothing. It was one of the more famous um, love stories of our history. He falls in love with the daughter of the wealthiest person living in Israel at the time. This was after the destruction of the Second Temple. And the daughter comes. Her name was Rachel. She comes to the father and says, Mazel tov, I'm engaged. Oh, that's wonderful. Who are you engaged to? To Akiva. Oh, the Akiva from the, the yeshiva. No, no, not that one. From the academy? No. Is he the lawyer? No. Is he... Which Akiva? The shepherd. And he blows a fuse and he basically says to her, very simple, it's me or him. Either you're going to stay with me, and if not me, I don't, I'm going to disown you. And she chose him. She saw something in him that no one else saw. She motivates him to go and study, and he comes back after a number of years as the leader of the generation. Tens of thousands of students following him. His end was very tragic. This was, as I've mentioned, after the destruction of the temple during the time of King Adrian, one of the worst periods in our Jewish history, the terrible persecutions of the Jews in Israel. And they had caught the top ten Jewish leaders at that time, and they tortured them to death. Amongst them was Rabbi Akiva. And actually his death, they took combs of metal, they combed his skin until he bled to death. And he was the one who cried out, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, and he died saying the word Echad on his lips. That was the source for being burnt by the stake, saying Shema Yisrael in Auschwitz, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael. There's another whole lecture I will, I will hopefully give you about Shema Yisrael in itself. But in the meantime, this Rabbi Akiva, during his life, he actually made a very profound statement. And he said that if his entire life, all he would have done would have been to teach the meaning, the meanings of these crowns, as we call them in Hebrew, tagim, he would have not had enough time. That's how much there is to teach, not about the letters, not about anything else, but simply the meaning of these crowns. So these crowns have endless amount of explanations and meaning and purpose behind them. But very briefly, I will share with you the one on top of the Lamed. Now, because of the short of time, I'm not going to go to do a little demonstration here, but it remains the fact, if you were listening to me about the washing of the hands, remember we said, which side do we wash first, the right or the left? We, we wash the right-hand side first. And the reason for that was? Chesed. The reason is chesed. Chesed means kindness, generosity. Right? So therefore, the highest point of our Judaism, as far as it relates in the Hebrew letters, is the letter Lamed. It's the one that reaches into the spiritual realm. And what's the highest point on top of our Hebrew letters? It's the right-hand crown. So the highest point of being Jewish, now you get where it comes from? is being kind. This is the source. The highest points when little children are taught, Aleph Bet, 
they're taught that it's not just the Aleph Bet, it's not just the Lamed being the tallest letter, it's the right-hand crown. It's the crown on top of, all, of everything we do. Our job is to go out there in the world and be kind and be kind everywhere we go. At the same time, we also pray for kindness. We also want kindness to be bestowed upon us. That's the difference between the right, we still have the left. Because you can't be just, you know, for kindness, you know, you don't give money to a drunker who's going to buy more whiskey. Sometimes you have to have harshness. If your child's getting out of hand, sometimes a little pachantochis is also in, is in need, right? But if we have to do the left side, if we have to be harsh, it's the lower one. So we have the tall one being the right, and if we have to do a bit of harsh measurement, as we say in Hebrew, gevura, toughness, we'll do it, but just the lower one. It's the second best, but not surely what we go for. Now, has any of you ever heard of the book called Magic Eye? There's a book called Magic Eye, a fascinating book. If you have a chance, you can go down to, you can buy it. I remember when I heard about this, I, I couldn't comprehend what it was. And even after I got it, it took me a while to work it out. It's a book of pictures. The problem is the pictures look like technically a monkey drew it. It's just abstract colors and shapes, and you look at it and you see there's nothing. The instructions say you're supposed to take it, literally, pull the page up to your nose, your eyes go blur, and then you slowly are supposed to move it away from your nose, and as your eyes refocus, you will see a 3D image inside that picture. It's unbelievable. We have two of them in our house. Recommend it. It's fun to do. Our Torah is a magic eye. You can look at it from different locations and see different things in these letters. You know, as they say, the higher you go up in the sky, you're able to see much further down from the, you know, even from a plane, you could see deeper, go and take, you know, a satellite and suddenly you're seeing areas like you could not have seen from a lower distance. The letters that we write are traditionally black on the parchment, which is that white, off yellow, right, beige. So what are we reading? Are we reading black on white or white on black? We're reading the black on white. That's, most scripts are in that way. Where is it? So when you take this parchment and you're looking at it, you're, we read black on white. There are those scholars that when they read, they're not reading the black. They're reading the white. They are reading the spaces in the letters and surrounding the letters and the shapes and images that, that, it, that it provides and it creates. So much of our behind the scenes, if you will, knowledge about Judaism and who we are and where we're going and what's going on does not come from the black on white, but rather the white on the black. If anyone ever had a chance to read in the Kabbalah, it's called the, the black fire, the white fire. There's many ways it's described. I'm going to show you one little glimpse to the concept itself. The letter is going to be, you can call it out when you see it. What's the letter? Pay. The letter pay, right? Now normally, I would color in the pay. But this time I'm going to color inside the pay. Do you see what's going on in there? Inside the pay is a letter bet. Okay, coincidence, cute. <laughs> Try this again. What was the first letter in the Torah again? 
Okay, well, well, okay. The first letter ultimately in Hebrew alphabet. Oh, sorry. But the first letter written in the Torah is the letter Bet. And how did God make this world? What was his magic? How did he do it? All he did was spoke. And you speak from your? From your mouth. And how do you say mouth in Hebrew? So the first letter that came out of the pay was the letter Bet. And that's not even and that's not even scratching. Wow. Suddenly you start going, oh my gosh, no, what? And just suddenly the reality of how the shapes and sometimes it's letters and sometimes it's just simply other shapes and images based on what you're looking at. And this is an art which I'm just starting to comprehend myself, but it's overwhelming. How these letters are not just letters; they're shapes, they're names. Did you know that Hebrew letters have numerical values to them? Right? Aleph e equals 1. Bet equals 2. And so on, right? Yud is 10. Kaf is 20. One of the more famous ones, if you will, is <clears throat> the ultimate... It's a very profound question. Could you imagine... Um, okay, sorry. What are the first three words of the Torah? Let's start it this way. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. Right? So in the beginning, God created. Which name is used? Elohim. Now, I'm not sure if any of you know, but there are many names to God. Right? Hashem, Elohim, Shakai, Kel, Tzvakot. There's a lot of them. Which is considered the name? The name that is higher, greater, almighty. Which one? That is correct. yud heh right? Elohim is a strong second. Wait. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. Where's the ultimate name? You know what it's like? Could you imagine? Election. New president. Coming, swearing in. Right? Let the President of the United States come up and take the oath. And up jumps the Vice President and says, okay, I'll do it. No, no, no. Maybe in four years, if you're lucky or not, whatever. But now we're looking for the President. Oh, he's on vacation in Hawaii. Uh, it doesn't work. Inauguration day, you've got to have the President. So you go and tell me, you know, on the campaign, you can have other people showing up. But not on the day. On the day God creates the world, God himself is on vacation? Where was he? We only send in Elohim. What? It gets better. If you look through the entire seven days of creation, six days plus Shabbat, the only name of God that's used is Elohim. In fact, the concluding part is what we say in the Kiddush of Friday night. Seven days are over. Only that name is used. Turn the page, suddenly, good morning, ha <laughs> ha, suddenly, Yud Kevavke appears, Hashem appears. Vayi biyom barot, Hashem alokim, and starts going, suddenly, like, he came back from vacation, a week too late. <laughs> but this is all, the answer to it is based on the numerical value. You know how we call that in Hebrew? It's called gematria, okay? It's a very profound concept coming to answer a very significant question in Judaism. Often we find that people suggest that science, nature, and belief in God contradict. How can you believe in nature and believe in God creating the world and nature? At the same time, there's too many seemingly. Judaism says on the contrary. It's all part and parcel. Nature is a creation and it is something that governs this world. We believe in nature, absolutely. But God actually made it in such a way that it is real. And it's based on a very simple concept. <clears throat> if we take the name, the word, okay, we can go and take the, how do you say nature in Hebrew? 
Teva. And if you say the word the nature, we're creating now the nature of the world, Hateva. If we'll take it down over here. Okay, hey, what number is hey? Five. Okay, tet, nine. Bet, two. Ayin, 70. What do we have? 82. Okay, play along with me on this one. If we do Elohim, I'm going to write instead of the hey a kuf so we can erase it. So it's really a hey up there. Okay, if you take the aleph. Lamed, 30. Hey, Yud, Mem. So suddenly, Elohim was the power that creates nature. So when you see nature, Judaism believes that everything in nature has godliness in it. It was Elohim that created the source of nature. There's another question, why did God have to create nature? We'll get into another conversation about the why. But the fact remains that Elohim was the source to create nature. And so one suddenly can go on studying and learning and following Torah exclusively based on these gematrias. So much of what you do in your particular rituals are based on gematria. It's unbelievable. I will conclude with the following and then I'll open up some questions. So, we said that the first three words of the Torah were Bereshit, Barai Elohim, right? Those are the first three words. And <clears throat> I'm sure you've all had a chance to be either to Las Vegas or anywhere else, and you've seen magicians before. What are the famous two words that all magicians use? Abracadabra. And you all knew that that was Hebrew. Abracadabra is Hebrew. Well, it's actually very simple. So, we say that at the beginning, God created the world. What are the first three words? Bereshit, Bara Elohim. Bereshit means what? In the beginning. Bara means what? Created. To create. Elohim, God. In the beginning, God created. Wait, how did he do it? Well, we had a big hammer and chisel. So we say all he did is he spoke. That's how he did it. Okay? But you all know, by the way, that magicians, they're not really doing real magic. It's an illusion. Right? They'll have their balls under their sleeve, their chicken under their kippah, and things like that, right? Okay? And they say, look over here, and they're doing it down there. But they're really trying to imitate real magic. So what would be real magic if I would say, right here, right now, I'd like to have a tree, and there it would be. If I could speak it, and it could happen, that would be the most incredible magic, right? That's what they're trying to imitate, to make you get the feeling as if they're doing it. Although they've all planned it before. Bereshit, bara, elokim. Bara means to create. How would you say in Hebrew, I create? All you would do is you would take the word bara, you would add one letter with one vowel under it. You would say, abra, and Hebrew means I create. How did God create? He spoke. How do you say to speak in Hebrew? Ledaber, to speak. You take the word daber, and you add one letter, one vowel. Ke, dabra, which means as I speak. Abra, kedabra means I create as I speak. And that's why even if it's a Chinaman magician and you have no clue what the guy is saying, he's speaking in Chinese and he's, he's about to do his magic, it's abra kedabra. Why we're imitating real, real magic. This is the real thing. 
Thank you all. Now you know the rest of the story. Any questions? Any questions? I love questions. Go ahead. No, so what happens is, what happens is, is that we take actually 62 sheets like this. Each sheet would have four columns like what you're seeing here. And then we stitch the sheets together. We actually sew them together with the sinew of the animal, or rather more commonly known, the animal gut. And all the sheets are sewn together. And ultimately we put different patches on top and the bottom, reinforcements, and that's how we attach the whole Torah together. But when we're writing it, we're going to be writing on individual sheets, and then we attach all the sheets together. So, but that is just like... This is one sheet right now one, of the 60... Just, that's right, of the 60... Okay. Correct. Right. The beauty of a Torah is that when you have only one script in it from beginning to end. Now, I suppose, if God forbid, a sofer got sick or couldn't finish, whatever, you can bring in someone else to complete it. Um, often after the Holocaust, you know, many Torahs were destroyed and burnt, but not complete Torahs. So you would have half of this one, half of that one. Sometimes I've seen scrolls made out of four or five different scrolls where they would just attach together, and suddenly it's a new script. There's, it's definitely saving a Torah, but as far as writing it, the beauty is when you have from the first letter to the very last letter, it's all consistent and, and even. So traditionally it would be one scribe writing from beginning to end, including the outline letters. We, it's, yeah, no, everything. The stitching, absolutely, everything until it's ready. So you would... Correct, I would, stitch it. I would stitch it together. But what's interesting is that today, well, let's go backwards. Once upon a time, as you heard from myself, that remember with my mezuzah, that I had that mistake? At that day, I learned a very, I understood a very important Jewish lesson, which I, not, I knew about it, but I didn't understand it. And that, it says... In Ethics of Our Fathers, I'm not sure if any of you ever had a chance to read it. It's a fascinating Jewish book from the time of the temple with morals, ethics, values, sayings of our sages. And there's a very profound statement that says the following. It says, every person, all human beings, you should not trust yourself until the day you die. I remember reading that all along in Yeshiva. I said, okay, come on, I'm not that bad, you know, right? But the fact remains that when we're born, we are very short, shortly after we're in this world, we gain the benefit of being knowledgeable practically to the level of a PhD to be able to see the faults of everybody around us. You get to know someone, you get to know their faults. That's who we are, right? You go in the classroom, teacher, teacher, this one's cheating, this one's chewing gum, this one's kicking me, right? You never see a kid turning around and say, teacher, teacher, it's me. I'm chewing the gum, I'm cheating, right? So we are masters of seeing everybody's faults but our own. So therefore, our sages tell us that because we cannot see our own mistakes, we have to find a good spouse, a good teacher, a good rabbi, so hopefully a good friend. So hopefully, if they're going to see our mistakes, they'll be nice about telling it to us. <laughs> okay? So as far as it comes to Torahs, it is prohibited for a scribe to write and sell it directly to another person. It has to be checked by one, and many suggest even two other scribes. It has to be examined for accuracy by someone else. Because as I saw myself, I couldn't see my own mistakes. And as much as I'm in the, in the business, I'm called the eagle's eye. I see everybody's mistakes. If it's there, I see it, other than my own. 
So as a result, once upon a time, there would be two scribes who would read from the, the whole Torah from beginning to end, letter by letter. And one would read it, one would check it verse, over another text. Today, we actually do both that, but we don't rely on that alone. We actually computer check the whole Torah. So the entire scroll is scanned, and it's almost like a spell check for that matter. And it, it checks it for accuracy, for shapes, for absolutely everything. We do that as well. And when we deliver a Torah, it will also come with what we call a zero report. In other words, if there were you know, letters touched, whatever the mistakes that may be found, ultimately when anything could be written, elongate the race, it's too short of a vav, whatever the story might be, only when the computer checks it and gives you zero issues is the Torah ready now to be sold and passed on. Yeah. So what ha it's very, actually very simple. As long as it's not God's name, it's actually very simple. All you do is you just, you can, as I mentioned, because the ink does not penetrate the parchment, you can just peel it off, clean it up down a little bit, rewrite it, you'll never tell it was there. It, that's the magic of that ink. It attaches itself to the parchment permanently, and yet with a very hard, sharp object, what usually would be like, like a razor blade, I can bend it a little bit, pull it off without making a hole. I remember one of the things that I was training when I was becoming a scribe, I had written thousands of letters on a piece of parchment, and then I started to train to peel them off. I call it the holy sheet. It was just, it's full of holes, you know, oh, too far. But now I can just, almost with my eyes closed, pull off the ink and still not touch the parchment. Does it penetrate immediately? No, well, no, immediately, immediately. Once it touches it, it, it attaches and it's there. If it's a mistake in God's name, now you have a problem at the very worst, you would have to replace an entire sheet, which is about two, three days of work. That's the max. Okay, so there is a myth out there that if you make a mistake, you have to start the whole thing again. That is incorrect. Okay. Yeah. They will be more... Well, I, no, I think a new Torah, the, the lines will be more visible, period. As the years go on, it slightly gets worn out somewhat. But in any tour, no matter how old it is, you will always see, if you look under the right lighting, you will see the lines over there because that, it had to have been written with the lines to begin with. Yeah. You've spoken about how important the right hand is. Are there left-hand filters? Yes, there are a few, very few. And I've tried to train a few, and I've not been successful. I train scribes. It's a very difficult art to write with the left hand. It's practically impossible, but you have to use your hand. It's a very funny, awkward way of writing it. I know of two who were able to come through that hurdle and do it, um, but it's not common at all, at all. Yeah. Okay, so you took out um, our, our, our Peace. identity, and it didn't start on the side, it started in the middle. Okay, the answer for that is because at the beginning, and in fact also the end of the Torah, we're gonna to be attaching the poles. So in the, on the first and the last, instead of having four columns on the sheet, there'll only be three. Okay, so if you actually, if you want to see the measurements of the, you'll notice, here, if you hold this one over here, okay, here's one column, here's two columns. If you see the, you see the lines here? Mm -hmm. And there's a third column. This one is blank because we're going to be using this now for the poles. We're going to attach it and still have room to roll it so the stitch does not go, cause any dents on the writing itself. So the first one and the last one would will, will actually only have three columns to allow for the poles. Yeah.
Okay, maybe I'll ask it like this. The, the Jewish law says that every Jew has to write a Torah. And you're telling me I'm going to write what? One letter? What am I missing here? Okay, I'm doing a letter. Okay, that's cute, that's nice, but it's not a whole Torah. So the truth is, most people, in fact, it's the 99.99 and a half, even if they wanted, wanted to write a whole Torah, they couldn't. I don't have the time, I don't have the ability, my handwriting is like a doctor, who's going to pay, I have to train for four years, it doesn't work. So our sages used to, act, the, the idea was, in the past 2,000 years, they said if you just contribute money towards the writing, it would be as if you fulfilled the mitzvah. But the mitzvah still remains to actually write yourself. So it says that prior to 2,000 years when the Sofrim, when we used to live in Israel, it says that the scribe would go down with the skins of the animal to a town, to a village, and he would actually write the Torah with every single family. Everyone would have a chance to participate. And since we know that if you were reading from a Torah, and Rabbi mentioned this earlier, that if one letter is missing in the Torah, the whole thing is not, doesn't work. We, it's called not kosher. Until fixed, it's not good. So in other words, the power of making this Torah whole and complete, changing it from a wannabe Torah into a real Torah, rests on the, on the shoulders of any single individual letter, whether it's the first one, the middle one, or the actual very last one. So until every single letter is written, it's close, it's nice, it's cute, but it's not the real thing. So therefore, collectively, every single letter that you and I and you will be writing will have the power and the energy, if you will, of the entire scroll to make it from a could be Torah into a real Torah. So the way it's going to work is that we're going to create these open letters scattered throughout the scroll and every month or two or whatever I will be coming back, me or one of my colleagues, and we'll be having schedules and every family will have a chance to come up and sign up to be able to write in the Torah. You'll be sitting next to me over here. We'll explain to you what letter it is, what, what word it is, the meaning significance, and you will be writing your letter in the Torah. You'll be getting a certificate to identify which one it is and remind you about it and so on. Absolutely, this is it. You're going to be participating and actually writing with me as we're scribing that letter. Okay, so what they wrote so far is that one word. It's the first word. The four paragraphs or whatever you have. Is that Genesis? Yeah, that's the first four lines of the book of Genesis. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's the it's the real yeah. This is the yeah. This is the real thing. Yeah, okay. Again. Okay. So, uh, thank you very much. Okay.